Okay, so first thing, can you just say your name for the recording, please? Yes, my name is Unita Olitha Brewer. And what class did you graduate in? I graduated in the class of 1970. Okay, and where were you born? I'm looking at my birth certificate, and mm-hmm. it says I was born in Red Oak Township, North Carolina. I, I, the reason I looked it up is because we just always said Red Oak Community, but officially it was Red Oak Township, which is now uh, a part of Rocky Mount, North Carolina. At that time, it was a small community. I was born at home. Okay. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And what did your parents do? Both of my parents were elementary school teachers. My father became a principal. When he started out, sorry, he was the principal of a small, like, uh, three-person black school. When I grew up, schools were segregated, and so um, I'm just pointing that out. He, He was the principal of a... It was probably uh, one of the, I guess it's the, the Rosenwald schools, uh, because it was a, you know, a little wooden school with a, a water pump outside and a coal bin, and um, he he was principal there for a number of years, and then when schools integrated, he became a vice principal in one of the integrated schools. Okay. And how many siblings do you have? I have one whole sibling, meaning my brother and I were born to my mother and my father. We have the same parents. And then I have one half-sibling. Uh, her mother uh, is different than my brother and I, and um, we share the same father. But we grew up not in the same household, but as um, siblings. We you know, are, are siblings. What was your childhood like? It was both good and not good. Um, When I grew up in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, communities were really segregated. And so I grew up in the black world, and I I did not have any um, relationship or almost knowledge of what white people were doing in their world. And so... Um, in the world that I grew up in, it was very communal, and, you know, my mother's family, we, we grew up in Rocky Mount where my mother had grown up, and um, all of my cousins and aunts and uncles and, you know, my whole extended family were part of, of my life, and so that was warm and loving and communal and fun, and, you know, church and Bible school and junior choir and all of that. What was difficult is that my father was a very abusive person to us, um, to his children, and he was verbally abusive to my mother, so that our home was um, chaotic and dysfunctional and scary. But because we were embedded in such a supportive network of community and family, I would say overall it was a good childhood. So can you speak more to the racial tensions um, while you were growing up? 
primarily, I didn't experience racial tension because the communities, the white community and the black community were so completely separate. Um, if you can imagine it, every single service that white people had, black people had. So we had black contractors and doctors and pharmacists and um, preachers and teachers and carpenters. And so that was a whole world that you lived in. And the interaction that we had as children was very limited only say, going to the grocery store with my parents, because the clerks in the grocery store were all white when I was growing up, or um, going to shop at JCPenney. Um, then you had an interaction with white people. But as a general rule, I didn't personally experience tension until I was 15, and the NAACP um, decided that it was about time that the schools were integrated. The Brown versus Board of Education had, had been the law of the land since 1954, and here it was 1963, and the schools in Rocky Mountain, and Nath County, and Edcombe County, and all around were still segregated. And so in 1963, the local chapter of the NAACP initiated the integration of all the schools in Rocky Mount. And so there were kids who were enrolled in the elementary school, the junior high school, and the high school. And I was in that group of young people who were sent to integrate the high school. And that's when I encountered racial tension personally. Were your parents active politically or participate in any demonstrations during this time? No, they were. They didn't participate in any dis, um, demonstrations. There, there were. I don't recall there being any major demonstrations in our hometown. Um, my brother says that there was. There were plans for them, but. One that was planned didn't materialize, and then we were gone every summer, and I think there may have been a couple of demonstrations in the summers that we went to Mobile, Alabama, to visit my father's uh, relatives. Martin Luther King came to Rocky Mount, North Carolina, in 1962 and spoke at the, in quotes, black high school, which was Booker T. Washington High School, and I went to, my, my cousin and my brother and I went to the, the gymnasium to hear him speak. But um, as far as I recall, my parents were not active in demonstrations. They were active, my mother especially, in the National Education Association, which was segregated, of course, so that it was black teachers in the chapter that my mother was in, and they were actively politicking for integration of schools, for better quality materials, because in those days, white kids got new books, and black kids um, in, the, in the K 
county schools especially, got hand-me-down books. And so what that meant is when the school system purchased new books for white kids, the, the books that those kids had been using for the previous four or five years were then sent to the black schools. And my mother and my father used to bring home the books that they had been given for their kids, and you would see the names of the kids who had used the books before. And because my mother had grown up in Nash County, which is one of the counties that Rocky Mount is located in, she knew a lot of, of the families, white and black, and so she recognized the names, and it was the way it was. So in that sense, they were politically active in wanting to correct that injustice. Did your parents belong to the NAACP? Yes, they did. So how did you feel about your early schooling? Until I went to senior high school, Rocky Mount Senior High School, which had previously been uh, all white, well, mostly all white, Um, and I say that because one person uh, who lived right around the corner from Rocky Mountain Senior High School had enrolled, and her name was Vita Clark. And so, except for Vita, um, Rocky Mountain Senior High School was segregated. So from the time I was in kindergarten till ninth grade, I had the best school experience ever. Just um, challenging assignments, great teachers, loving teachers, fun recess and school plays and operettas and singing in the glee club and um, having wonderful art uh, projects and admiring um, the teachers and principals in the black system because those were the people that we knew and they were all just so dignified and um, wonderful role models of, of living, you know, a great, decent, happy life. Of course, I'm a, talking from a kid's point of view. Mm-hmm. They were human beings, so of course they had struggles of human beings, but I didn't know about all that. So my early schooling was wonderful. I loved it. And I was a smart kid. So, you know, I got to do uh, enrichment activities with with other smart kids. You know, when you took a scholastic test, I always um, scored very high. And I was elected president of my homeroom, like, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. So it's like, you know, what's not to like about this? And I, I ran for president of the school body when when we when I was in ninth grade and uh, it never occurred to me that running against a guy was a big deal because I wanted to do it and I had always been encouraged to do what I wanted to do so that was my introduction into sexism but I did it anyway I ran a great campaign I didn't win but part partly because the zeitgeist of the time was do we really want a girl to be president of of the ninth grade? And I was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> and there were other kids, including girls, that I found out later who were like, no, that's a role for a guy. 
So uh, aside from that, I, I had a wonderful early schooling. That's great. Um, so can you speak more to your high school experience in the uh, desegregated? Oh, my goodness. Here come the tears. It was very hard. It's very difficult. I had, up until that point, so I was 15 years old, I had never encountered any personal racial animosity aimed at me personally because we were protected from that. Um, parents in the community, they just walled you off from those experiences. And what I remember is the first day I walked into the auditorium at Rocky Mount Senior High School to um, take my place, a boo, a huge boo, erupted when I came through the door. And it was the most startling and scary experience I had, except, yes, so that was a very uh, scary welcoming if you put quotes around welcoming, mm-hmm. to um, integrated education. It was very difficult. You can pause the tape for just a moment. Okay. We talked while we were there, and it was the first time in 50 years that we had ever talked about our shared experience at senior high school and the difficulties and um, the kids who, the black kids who were our friends said, we never knew, you never told us, we had no idea that you were going through this. And we all wept together. And we realized that we had kept it all in. We never even talked to each other, except there was one um, guy friend that I had who told me, reunion last year that he found incredible comfort in talking to me because we used to talk at least once a week and that um, I was the only person that he really could talk to about what he was experiencing. Uh, I don't know why we didn't feel like we could talk about it, but we didn't. And that having been able to have my support, even though I was obviously in pain myself, but that enabled him to finish high school. And he is now a PhD, a um, professor, he's written books, and he and I wept together because I didn't know that. And he hadn't told me, but his wife had encouraged him to share that with me. And so that made a difference to me, even though it's 50 years later to know that I had helped him. And I think it helped me also to deal with the um, mean-spiritedness. Nobody in my homeroom spoke to me for three years. It was hard. It was very hard. So, did you 
have any mentors in high school? I want to give a shout out to my homeroom teacher, okay. who is Miss Alma Murkison, M-U-R-C-H-I-S-O-N, who was a wonderful human being and always made me welcome, who at one point uh, upbraided, I guess is the southern word, the people in my class for being so unkind. And I have to go back and revise. So that was my senior year. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, while people didn't, in quotes, just have random conversations with me, I was included in things like decorating the, the bulletin boards and things like that. So I would say Ms. Murkison was a mentor, if anybody was, in high school. If I had been a Booker T, it would have been completely different, but that's the way it was for me. Right. Did you feel prepared to go to college? Yes, I did. Okay. With a great curriculum at senior high school, and although the only, there were three teachers who were kind and supportive, my homeroom teacher, Ms. Murkison, but I never took a I took one course from her, and that was English. And um, my French teacher, Miss Craighill, and uh, Miss Disney, who was the creative writing teacher, I think my junior year. Um, other teachers, one, either didn't talk to me, address me, look at me, or in any way give me help or support, but I was prepared. As a matter of fact, my mother, um, and when I say my mother, I mean my parents, had to hire uh, an algebra tutor for me because I was, I had difficulty understanding it and the algebra teacher wouldn't talk to me. And so I couldn't get any help in school, so they ended up having to hire a tutor for me. Did any of your um, family members attend college? Yes, both of my parents graduated from Winston-Salem State, it was called Winston-Salem State Teachers College when they graduated. I think it's Winston-Salem University now in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And my mother's youngest brother, John D, his middle initial is D for Daniel, Ricks, R-I-C-K-S, graduated from Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. And on my father's side, his cousin Isaac, who was a younger cousin to him, uh, graduated college and got a PhD in religion and philosophy, I think, and um, taught um, religion and philosophy at, um, is it Stevens College in Columbia, Maryland, at Columbia, Missouri, and was very active in Presbyterian Church. So why did you choose to apply to Goucher? This is funny. It's a funny story. Um, my parents were advocates of equality, and my father especially wanted me, because I was the oldest, 
of my his and my mother's children. His daughter, Constance, was with her mother. So he was an advocate for once the path of integration had been taken, let's just keep going. And ordinarily, I would have gone to a historically black college, and I had set my sights on one, but he was an advocate for widen your horizons. So I went to the guidance office, and I started reading the college um, catalogs, and I was very systematic. I started with A, (laughs) and when I got to Goucher, I read the catalog, like, from cover to cover. It was so amazing. It was like, what? There's a school who does this? I never heard of this school. This is amazing. So I, I couldn't go any further. I was so taken by the way the curriculum was organized, by um, what the college offered, the campus, you know, just looking at the pictures. And so I went to my guidance counselor and said, I would like to get more information about this. And you have to remember, I'm at a previously all-white school, so all the teachers were white. And my guidance counselor said, you'll never get in there. I don't know why you're interested in that. Well, she might as well have just lit the fuse to a rocket. Because I was like, yes, I will. Yes, I will. And I went home and I told my parents what she had said. And so they were like, well, yes, you will. If you want to do that, you just, you write and you get the information and you find out. And it became then a, I'll show you, plus my interest in the curriculum. And Goucher was all female at that point. And that was also appealing because it seems to me even then that being a smart girl was not as appreciated as I had thought it would be, that um, guys didn't like smart girls, or so I thought, you know, excepting Ronald Miller, who was my friend at Rockingham Senior High School, my black friend. And so I said, well, if I go to all, all women's college, I can be as smart as I want and pursue as anything I want, and nobody's going to try to say no. So that's the confluence. And I wanted to get as far away from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and that discrimination and prejudice as my parents would allow. And Maryland was the end of the tether that they had tied. It's like, yes, you can go there, but no further. So there you go. That's the answer. So did you know anyone at Goucher prior to attending? No, I did not. That's my my spirit of adventure. I used to say about myself, over my head is, is the invisible slogan, she ventures forth. <laughs> so it's like, I like what it offers. And uh, we had a, I don't know if they still do this, but our high school gave you a day to go uh, visit colleges, mm-hmm. and I visited I visited Goucher and a couple of other schools. I don't remember them now. My mother and her best friend went with me, and when I got on campus, I loved the campus. The administrators that I spoke with were welcoming, and I felt um, that I could be matriculated 
isolate there and it would be fine that I would get the education that I wanted, I would get away from home and all the craziness there, and I would escape from the racism that was so prevalent in North Carolina. I also applied to Tuskegee Institute, because that was my uncle's school, and I got a full scholarship, but I was afraid to go in the deeper south. It was just like, I cannot be down in Alabama with those crazy white people. So were your parents able to help you finance your education, or was it something you did yourself? It was both. Uh, Goucher gave me, well, I earned, because I got a scholastic scholarship, uh, which covered a portion of my tuition. It wasn't full tuition, so the debate was, do you go to Tuskegee where you have full tuition, or do you go where you want to go? And so basically my parents said, you can choose, and I said, well, I really want to go to Goucher, so... I had the scholarship, and I signed up for work-study, so I worked all four years, and then my parents took out loans for the rest. Can you describe how, you're, how you were feeling the first day of moving to campus um, or going to classes? I was excited. I was also a little nervous because I was leaving home, and even though I was desperate to leave home, it was still scary. Um, I was excited to be going to college and um, encountering a whole new world. And I was also realizing, oh, my God, I don't know anybody here. Oh, what is this going to be like? And I haven't seen any black kids here yet. Duh. Wait. <laughs> and then I saw Maxine and Pauline and their mother. You know, my, my parents, my brother went with us and me. And then across the, from the Crash Auditorium in that little fountain area where Maxine and Pauline and I remember exhaling and going, oh, it's going to be great. There are two. I know. But, hey, I already got friends. And um, so that was that. So, and then, of course, we talked. And we didn't just see each other. We, we um, greeted each other, and, and we really became friends right at that moment. So how did you feel about going to a college where you were part of a very small number of black students? It's Yipsara, right? That's your name? Yes. That's how I pronounce it correctly? Yipsara. Okay. I have to confess, I didn't, I don't remember thinking about it that way. I was aware of it. But the overarching goal for me was this is the kind of education I want to get. And this is the way I want to be able to get an education. You know, in those days, Goucher had three terms of 10 weeks each, and we went to class Monday, Tuesday. We had Wednesday off for study, and then we went Thursday, Friday, and it was very um, concentrated. But it was also creative and innovative, and um, I was attracted to that. So I hadn't thought about, oh, you're going to be one of four or five black kids on campus until I was actually there. And then I met Maxine and Pauline, and then I met Carlotta, who lived in the same dorm that I lived in, and she was uh, one class ahead of me. 
and it felt fine. And then we had relatives in Baltimore, and on weekends I would go to my cousins in in uh, Baltimore. So it it didn't register that oh this might be difficult until I was actually there. But it was not it was nothing compared to Rocky Mountain Senior High School, nothing. Okay. Did you live on campus? Yes, I did. All four years. And who um, were your roommates? My freshman year, I didn't have a roommate, and that was really lonesome. And I later discovered that Goucher had done that on purpose. So the next year, um, I roomed with Carlotta Washington, who was one year ahead of me. And we had already become fast friends when I was a freshman and she was a sophomore. So it was great. And we roomed together my sophomore year and the first term of my junior year. And then senior year, um, I roomed with Rita Ford, who was one year behind me. So um, can you speak more to um, Goucher giving you a single on purpose as a first year? Well, despite my our belief that Maryland was the North, Maryland was really a, a slave-owning state, so there were those attitudes on campus that maybe a white kid wouldn't want a room with a black kid. And that, I think, was the animating reason for me to have a single. I think Maxine, I think Maxine had a roommate freshman year, and I don't know if Pauline did or not, but I may be making it up that they, that that was what animated it, but I don't know why I was the one who got a single. Um, but I was, I was in a single, and but I didn't like it. Which building did you live in as a first year? Mary Fisher. I lived in Mary Fisher, and I was, my first year I was in Delaney. Mary Fisher at that time had four um, halls within it. So there was Delaney, Hooper, Baldwin, and I forget what the other one was. And I lived in Delaney my freshman year, and my sophomore year to the end, I was in Hooper House. How did you find living in the dorm as a first year um, in a single? Uh, I, I was lonely um, living in a single, but here's the thing. My, my um, hallmates were so warm. I give a shout out to Amy, Amy, she wasn't, she's Amy Gross now. I forget what her her name was when she was at Goucher. We hung out together. She was from New Jersey. Here I was, this real, really Southern person. I think there may have been three girls who were from, in quotes, below the Mason-Dixon. And there were two of us from North Carolina, Ruby and me, both were freshmen, and she was in the way other side of the campus. And... I was, you know, in Fisher, and I think there was one other 
um, girl on campus who was from Mississippi. And um, Amy and I used to go to each other's rooms and sit and talk, and then we'd go down to the vending machines and sit and talk, and um, just we made a fast friendship. And um, then uh, Doreen Saar, who lived on the other side of campus, but uh, somehow we got to know each other. We became fast friends, so I had I made friends of of people of women. We were girls. We called ourselves girls then because we were like eighteen um, in my dorm, and so I had a network. And then the upperclassmen who lived in the dorm were friendly as well. So Patty Kashiwa and Sue Gibbons and Carolyn. We all just became um, a group, and so it was less um, lonely because I had friends. Did you feel any racial tensions on campus or in the dorms? Well, I didn't feel any in the dorm, but there was one incident that happened freshman year that is both um, funny and sad, and the newspaper at Goucher then was called The Weekly, and Carlotta and I had gone to pick up The Weekly, and this was shortly after um, I was on campus, and I don't remember now whether it was freshman year or sophomore year. I think it may have been freshman, and the headline said something like, disadvantaged students on campus, and I remember turning to Carlotta and going, oh, who are they talking about? And Carlotta looked at me and basically said, they're talking about you guys, meaning me and um, they're talking about us, me, Pauline, Maxine, Carlotta. And we were both dumbfounded. It's like, what are they talking about? We're not disadvantaged. I got, you know, then I went into my harumph, you know, speech. I got great grades. I got here on on my merit, and we were just beside ourselves. And so Carlotta and I decided that we go, we go and speak to the editor of the paper. And I don't remember her name at this point, but we went to her room, and we basically had what would be called an encounter, where we really talked about the assumptions that she was making, or the staff, or the, you know, the paper were making, in describing um, black collegians as disadvantaged when we were not. And what was motivating that just because we were black kids didn't mean that we were, you know, from some horrible living environment. You know, Maxine and Pauline's mother, I think if she wasn't a teacher, she was a professional woman. Their father had died. Uh, my parents were both professional people. So we were looking at it as, what are they talking about? They don't even know us. They didn't even interview us. They just made some assumption. So that was one thing, but that was, um, we were able to have a conversation that clarified, and I think there was some something in the, in the weekly later that um, addressed the assumptions. And I don't know if they're in the archives or not, but that was the one incident on campus 
and you ask about on campus, and there was one incident off campus that involved me. So who did you spend the majority of your free time with? Carlotta. We were adventurers. We would we would go in, we'd get the bus from Towson and go into Baltimore and go to North Avenue and, you know, the black shopping district, and we would shop there and we would, you know, talk to people and we'd go over to Morgan and we took the bus over to D.C. to... Howard's campus, Howard University, we um, went to the meetings and rallies together. And then I sp- spent time with um, Amy and, and Barbara Patterson and Doreen and um, Patty Kashiwa and Sue on, you know, on campus. I also was a tutor. Uh, there used to be a big tutoring program uh, where Goucher girls went into Baltimore and we tutored, and I forget the, the agency that sponsored it, but, you know, I tutored and did stuff like that. What was the social atmosphere like at Goucher? There was a lot of anti-war um, um, activity on campus. It, there, it was, you know, Goucher at that time was was a was well known for having smart and and when I say girls I'm just speaking in the language of that time mm-hmm. that the the girls who went to Goucher were smart and so there was that that appreciation for intelligence and smartness and there were rules about how you dressed so in those days, you had to wear skirts. You couldn't, you know, wear pants going to class. And you had to, you know, more or less dress. So there were kind of like that um, social regulation part. And then there was this anti-war feminist uh, emerging movement on campus to get rid of all these um, nice lady uh, girls in their place, you know, women proper rules. And a lot of that was changed while I was there from the time I was a freshman when you had to wear skirts to class and um, other kinds of, of things to jeans and pants and sandals and long hair or natural hair, whatever you wanted. So it was, it was uh, filled with energy and uh, activity and advocacy and exploration. It was fun. It was energizing. It was mind-expanding. It was exciting. Were you politically active in any way? I was. I participated uh, in a couple of Vietnam anti-war marches. Uh, Goucher sent, I think it was 1967, there was a big anti-war march in, in D.C. And we had buses that went from Goucher to D.C. And I was in that march, and I participated in campus sit-ins and teach-ins and 
conversations about the war and what was going on and uh, supported people who were more um, traditionally politically active, who were helping people run for office and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I was. What did you major in at Goucher? I majored in American Studies. And at that time, the major consisted of, so you were looking at, at America and studying America, and you could choose three or four areas of concentration. So you could have history, sociology, music, religion, um, and I think there was another choice. And so my concentrations within American studies were sociology. Oh, yeah, you do politics. Sorry. Sociology, religion, and music. Were there any other black students in your classes? Not that I recall. If Maxine and Pauline remember, or Joanna Dixon, who was a day student, um, or anybody else that you interview remembers differently, great. I don't have a memory of that. Okay. Can you tell me about some professors that you connected with? Sure. Mr. Donaldson, who... I think maybe taught French. Um, Mr. Newman, who was my major um, advisor, so he, he ran the American Studies seminar. So that was your senior seminar. We had an integrative seminar. And he used to invite us, the majors, to his house. And so we, we knew him both as a professor and more socially. And Mrs. Ehrlich, Ehrlich who was my advisor, and I think her name was Ehrlich. I, I want to say Ehrlichman, but I don't think that's right. I think it was Mrs. Ehrlich. And then Mrs. Howe, who was um, started the Women's Study Department. And um, those are the ones I remember. It, of course, I also was uh, um, mentored by Dean Gein, who was the dean at the time. And Miss um, Dorsey, of course. Were there any professors you avoided? There were, but I have forgotten their names now. There was a, I think she was German, who taught German, because I, I was going to, I was, I started out as a French major and a German minor, and my goodness, she was cruel. And um, it was very difficult um, spiritually to be in class with her. So I just avoided her and I decided I'm going to be an American Studies major. I can still do French, but I'm not doing German. Right. I don't want to malign anybody also, so I'm glad I can't remember her name because I wouldn't <laughs> want to um, to be unfair about mm -hmm her motivation. She just may have been a tough professor, and that was just her way. So can you speak more to um, your membership in the Black Student Association? Maxine reminded me that unlike my memory of it, we got started as a reaction to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. I remember being so incredibly devastated 
just weeping, 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 and angry that such a uh, brilliant and inspiring and um, loving spiritual man, who could shoot him and why and prejudice was at the root of it and how terrible this was and that was the impetus and and then all around the northeast other black collegians who were on campuses also started wanting to get together and and do something that that uh, empowered us and that challenged this racism that was more subtle on college campuses than in the real world, but nevertheless was part of the, the zeitgeist of the times. So we had to do something, and so we did. So what type of activities did the Black Student Association participate in or sponsor? My, my memory is hazy about a lot of that, the one thing that I do know that we did is we wanted um, more, well, more, we wanted some um, course on uh, the African-American experience. And, and at that point, we were black people. We had a, a, a adopted that nomenclature. And we wanted a professor on campus who could teach about the history of black people and this may this would this would have been my uh, junior year, right? Six, six, seven, six, seven. Would have been the the spring semester of my sophomore year. It would have been sixty eight, and we wanted black faculty, so we advocated for that. And actually, there were a couple of black, potential black faculty members who were interviewed. Uh, none of them were hired, and so. I think at this point, Lucy Brown had transferred in to Goucher, and if she hadn't transferred in the spring of 68, she had in the fall, and her mother was a professor of African American or black history at Howard University. No, no, at, yeah, at, at Howard, and I think she ended up going to George Washington, and we ended up getting uh, the administration to agree to invite her and I don't know what the name is. Is it an adjunct when a, a person is not hired by the college, but they come and teach a course? And she came and taught um, African-American history on Goucher's campus. So we got that done. Do you remember her full name? Yes. She was Dr. Letitia Brown, L-E-T-I-T-I-A-B-R-O-W-N. And she became... Uh, an, an advisor to us, to the black students. So do you remember any other um, demands you had for administration? I don't. I'm sure if you see the list, uh, yeah. you have the list, right? Yes. Yeah. If you said them, I would go, oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> that. But off the top of my head, this is now, what, 51 years ago? Mm -hmm. 
I just don't have a memory of what else we were asking for. I think we also wanted um, something for the black staff who worked at Goucher. We wanted, wanted them to have better working conditions, better opportunity. We wanted good things for them, but I don't remember the list of demands. Do you have them in front of you? Um, not with me, but I can definitely okay. forward them to you. Oh, great. And then I can respond and go, oh, sorry, guess what? I remember that. <laughs> Do you remember um, the sort of reaction that other students had from the black student organization um, forming um, and demanding from administration? As always, I think there were two reactions. What the heck are they doing? And yay, you go, girls. So I think there was support from um, some students and confusion and unclarity from others. I don't recall any hostility. I mean, Goucher, after all, was, um, had a certain kind of refinement um, in, in how things were done. So I don't remember, you know, outright hostility, but I, I do remember there being confusion and perhaps I don't get it. You know, I don't know what they're after kind of thing. Do you think administration was supportive of the Black Student Association? I, I think so. I don't, I, I think there was... After, especially after the after the public um, demonstration when the board of trustees were meeting, where the demands were spoken out loud, I think then there was more of a a wake up and an awareness of oh my goodness we really have got to have a a, a response, not just a nodding of our heads like yeah yeah yeah. So I think on the one hand there was. Um, a toleration for what we black women collegians were asking for on Goucher's campus, and then on the other hand, not much, not much coordinated response, except in the two areas, bringing uh, recruiting from the pool of PhDs that were graduating, many of whom obviously had to be African American to starting to recruit from that pool and then bringing Dr. Brown on to teach. And then the other demands, I think they became more, more aware that they needed to do something. And if you, you read the history of Goucher, there, I think there is a, a chapter in there that talks about the reaction of the trustees and the administration to the demands. So, so did I answer the question? Yes, you did. Okay, great. Thank you. Did the um, Black Student Association participate in any other political activities on or off campus that you remember? I think Baltimore had a big riot. And I honestly don't remember whether it, it was probably 68 after Martin Luther King was assassinated because that was such a winding experience for black people especially, but 
there were also white people who were advocating for civil rights. So it was just so horrible. And Baltimore had riots. And um, I remember the black staff who ran the kitchens and um, the, the um, it wasn't a student union. I forget what we called it at the time. Uh, they had to be housed on campus for two or three days so that because they couldn't get into Baltimore, the National Guard cordoned it off. And we, we did some conversations on campus around racism and the impact of um, the assassination. I remember we were, were part of that dialogue. And I don't have much more of a memory of it than that. And other things I don't remember, but if you talk to Peggy Brooks, I'm sure she'll remember more. So do you feel that Goucher changed um, by the time you graduated? Yes, I do. Um, It changed in a lot of ways. One, the whole way of looking at women, girls and women, changed from this is the way we expect you to look and behave on campus to much more, uh, we had much more of an empowered position about how we were showing up socially and as women. So that was one shift. Um, another shift was that there were more black students on campus and more black city students who were more day students. I think in our time they were called city students. They were commuters. Um, so there was a, a larger presence of black students on campus. In, in one respect, you know, the the unfamiliarity with black people was still there. So we, Maxine and Pauline and me and whoever, if we saw each other coming to and from class and we stopped to talk, you could see the white students passing by us, looking at us, going, what are they talking about? And yes, we're making it up, what they were thinking, but the looks on their faces were just, you know, priceless. And we used to joke, amongst each other and go, you know, we can't even talk to each other like friends without somebody thinking we're up to something that we're plotting. (laughs) And we would laugh, but it was uh, sad that it seemed that that was still a part of the atmosphere, the idea that, that black people were somehow other than people. So to be stark about it, you know, well, white people can, and, and collegians and girls and women can hang out with each other, and they're hanging out with each other. But if we see black people hanging out with each other, we don't, I'm speaking from the point of view of a black person imagining what a white person is thinking, oh, my God, what are they doing? Because there's an unfamiliarity with the fact that black people are human beings just like you. And we do human being things. And part of being a human being is socializing, socializing. So that sense of, and I don't know how to describe it other than 
they are not like us, and so their lives aren't like ours. That was still there. But on another level, you know, I had lots of, of white friends, and so did Maxine and Pauline. We had friends that we had made in freshman year, and I'm still friends with Doreen Sarr. She was here at my house last spring. We've been friends since I was 18 years old. That's 50, 51, 50 years last year, 51 years this year. And I have deep friendships with people I knew at Gaucho. So, yes, it had changed. And on the other hand, there were the the always um, enlightened element that was always there. Do you have any special... Sorry, if you need to ask me something else about that, let me know. Oh, it's fine. Okay. Do you have any special memories of Goucher that you'd like to share? I want to tell you about this thing that happened um, in Towson. Mm -hmm. And then I'll tell you about a special nice memory. When I was a freshman, I was active in drama, both at Goucher and over at Johns Hopkins. I did some, I was in a couple of performances at Johns Hopkins as well as um, working on theater stuff at Goucher. And one of the white professors, and of course, Goucher had no black professors, so it's redundant to say white professor, but I'm mm-hmm. just saying this for the purpose of the story. We were looking for props. That was our job. And so we went into Towson to that little mall, which is a huge mall now. When we were at Goucher, it was an open-air mall. And we went to the Heck Company store, H-E-C-H-T, to look for props that we needed for the play that was being produced. And I don't know what we were thinking. It never occurred to us that people would perceive us as a couple. But they did. And by the before we got back from campus, so imagine we walked down, and I don't know if you can walk over to the mall now, but in those days, you could get by the Crosser Auditorium, You'd go a little bit further, you'd make a left, you could walk right over across um, that street and you'd be right at the mall. Before we could get from the mall back on campus, someone had called to uh, lodge a complaint that Goucher was um, supporting interracial couples. And Carlotta tells me that the person who called was a peanut heiress was someone who was very rich, very wealthy, and um, made the complaint. And I don't remember the name of the professor, but it was a big brouhaha. He got called in to the academic office. I got called in to uh, Dean Dean and... I, I'm I'm sure he was in in some way uh, reprimanded. You know, what were you thinking, kind of thing. And I wasn't reprimanded as much as it was be aware of the environment in which we're living. And Goucher didn't do anything, but it was galling to me. One because he was a married man and had two children. Why would anybody think that? 
you know, these were my innocent days that I would be, in quotes, having an affair. Oh, you could, you should have heard me with a married man. And on and on, I went to Carlotta about this. I can't believe this. This is terrible. And I am glad that Gadget didn't take any negative um, actions against him or me, but I was upset even that they they even spoke to us about it. I, they, I wanted them to be saying, get a life. Are you kidding? Even if they were and they weren't, it's none of your business and it's a free country. So that was upsetting to me. And I think that was the spring of my freshman year probably. But, you know, So that was um, upsetting. I don't know another word. Really upsetting to me. And I don't think he stayed at Goucher very long, but I don't know. I don't think it had any connection to that incident, but I just remember that being so distressing to me. So that was that. And positive memories. I loved singing in the choir. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was, we sang wonderful music. We get, we, we, because Goucher was a women's college, at that time, um, we did concerts with the men's school, so we did them with Princeton and um, uh, Johns Hopkins and um, another school that I can't remember right now. But, you know, we had a, a concert series, and I loved uh, the way Mr., I think it was Mr. Craighill, um, the music he chose and the joy he brought to the work we did, and I also sang in the, the chapel choir, and I, I loved doing that. Um, I loved that Goucher students had a social conscience and that we tutored kids, that we advocated for our beliefs, that we were respectful of people, because there were people on campus who were for the war, you know, that we, we had that faction. But we were able to speak up, speak out, take action on things that mattered. Um, I loved the community of black students and how we formed our, our, our connection and network and supported each other, most of us not having known each other before we landed in Towson, Maryland, and helped each other navigate not just Goucher, but life, learning about life. Um, I was the only Southern person on, you know, in, in the black student group. Everybody else was either D.C. or Baltimore or um, some other northern place. And so I was very, ooh, um, naive and old-fashioned. My skirts were, oh, I don't know, four or five inches below my knee. <laughs> and one afternoon while I was out doing something, um, a few of my friends got together, cut my skirts off, hemmed them, and said, welcome to the modern age. And from then <laughs> on, I was a, a, a fervent miniskirt wearer. Is like, oh, really? I can do this. <laughs> but that was, that's funny. And, and also funny. It was fun, you know, to, to be 
um, to have my notions of of womanhood and appropriateness challenged and enlarged. So, yeah, that was good. And I loved the professors who were um, loved their subject, whatever it was. You know, Miss Giffins, who just loved political science and was smart and funny and encouraging and supportive. I loved that that was present. And um, that Goucher had a history of welcoming students. And my father and my, my mother were worried that I would be going to this school that it, they didn't know anybody. So my father actually came up the the um, summer before I became a freshman, and he met with the administrators and talked with them, and they reassured him, and they were. The campus was, for the most part, um, a welcoming, non-discriminatory place. And when people like the editor of the weekly made decisions based on faulty assumptions we could talk about it i remember that that conversation being so um, it was a dialogue not a screaming match where we really and it, it was not um easy it wasn't easy for her it wasn't easy for us either but we did it we said this is important and we need to talk about it. And she was willing to talk about it. Wow. Amazing. How do you see Goucher today? I was elected um, the president of, I don't remember what they called it, of Hooper House. And, you know, continuing that long tradition of me being <laughs> elected president <laughs> of things. And... You know, obviously, there. I think there may have been three black students in Hooper House. So it was a reflection, I think, of people seeing me. And I was um, honored to have had that responsibility, been, been entrusted with that responsibility, because it was. Because at that point, I don't know if Goucher still has an academic student panel because we had an honor code and so all the presidents of the the dorms met to to consider uh, honor code violations um, and you know like not cheating not lying not stealing that kind of thing uh, so that that was a real responsibility and I was um, I felt honored to be entrusted with it what I I think is different now is coeducation was good, so I'm not against coeducation. What is different is that there was a place then for women to push their limits and take on leadership roles. That's why I told you about being elected president of the dorm, that was a leadership role, and it gave me the opportunity to try that on in a way different from elementary school, nevertheless an extension of that, because it's still, you know, leadership even in the fifth grade, um, and to 
to be nurtured to step into bigger roles and to move beyond the boundaries that society and um, law put up for women and black people too, but to really get practice in how to deal with that and to make change. And, and the first time I came back to Goucher after co-education, and it was a, a long time after, one of the things I noticed is that most of the leadership roles were occupied by men, young men, you know, who were students. And that was a change that I noticed, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if the presumption that men um, should be in charge is operating now that Goucher is co-ed. I don't know if that's true, but I just noticed that. And there obviously are very capable, talented young women who are thriving in the co-education environment because I've met them as part of being on the Alumni Council. But that was one of my concerns. Would young women be given opportunities to grow as human beings and as leaders so they could go out in the world and continue to foster inclusion and to challenge um, discriminatory practices and laws. And I think that that spirit of community and uh, inclusiveness is still at Goucher, and I'm proud to, to have been in that tradition and to have had the educational and social and spiritual experience that I had at Goucher. Is there anything you would like to discuss at this point? When I was a junior, we decided that we wanted uh, to have a television in um, our door. The the um, I don't remember what we called it now, but but the meeting room that we had on on the floor, you know, like couches and but we didn't have a, a great television, so we we brainstormed it, and I think. I was president of Hooper House at this point, that we were going to start a discotheque because in Hooper House there was a basement. And we petitioned the administration to allow us to do a, a disco, which they agreed. And we decorated it in the basement. And we decided that we would have two dancing girls. And because we were... The women's college, we knew that what would attract the guys from Hopkins, because in order for it to, to be a fun place and for people to come, we had to have men and women, boys and girls. And so we decided that we would get the two most shapely um, women to, be, to dance, and we created this, uh, this little uh, platform. We built a, we had a box, and we spray-painted it, and we bought um, dance and dresses, and we did, we had Carlotta, who was very buxom, buxom, and another, and who was black, and then we had a young white woman who was tall and lithe and long hair, and we made a deal with the guy who drove the bus at Hopkins, because in those days, Hopkins would send a bus over to Goucher on Wednesdays, 
and we could go over to the Eisenhower Library and study and use the, you know, the resources in the library. So we made a deal with this guy that he could come to the discotheque for free if he would drive the Hopkins guys who wanted to come over. So we, we think of how entrepreneurial and creative and innovative we were. And so we, we taxed ourselves, we raised the money, we, we bought snacks, we, we found out that you could get one of those um, you know, soda-making machines, we rented one of those, we figured out how to make it work, and we opened a discotheque in the Hooper House basement. And we charged a modest fee, and we had poetry readings, we had some of the English um, professors who would come and read poetry, we had uh, young women on campus, we had guys from Hopkins. It was the best good thing happening on, on campus, because, you know, there was not a lot happening on a woman's campus. It was so much fun. And then we decided that we wanted to succeed, to secede from the administration rules and regs, that we would just set up our own house, that we were able to fund it, we had the money, we could have our own rules, none of this, you know, keep your door open, you know, at least a quarter of an inch if you have a, a guy visiting you. You don't remember, you don't know anything about those <laughs> rules, do you? No. There were dating parlors um, down in the, the lobbies of all the dorms, and so when the boyfriend or friend came a-calling, you could, if you were an underclass woman, you met them in the dating parlor, and mostly those were open, but if you were an upperclassman, you could invite the guy to your room, but you had to keep the door open at least the width of a quarter. And so the dorm residents would walk the halls to make sure that you know no, none of the doors were closed. So these kinds of rules that we decided we wanted to secede from the Goucher administration, and we made a petition and we took it to the administration, and the answer was, no, you can't do this. <laughs> so they made us close our discotheque. And it really, we, you, could, you could have called it, a, you know, an underground club or whatever you wanted to call it. We had the most fun just creating the idea. And, and no, I, must, I couldn't have been president because I, I was like maybe a sophomore. So whoever it was that was president of Hooper House, we had a ball, and we raised so much money that we got the best television, not just any old television, and Sue Gibbs and I were old movie fans, and Sue and I would stay up nights together popping popcorn and watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies on our brand new television, <laughs> and, and girls from other dorms would come, wow, you guys have a great TV, how'd you get that? <laughs> so that was a fabulous experience, and it also taught me about organizing and pursuing dreams and doing things out of the box just because you have the, the opportunity and, and the desire to get it done, to, to dream big and then put action behind it. That was so much fun. Gosh, that was fun. And I went over to Morgan. We had been going over periodically because um, one of my hometown friends was at Morgan. So we would go over and see her. And we also wanted the community the, to be, 
with black people and have that community and social connection that we were missing at Goucher. And when Stokely Carmichael came to speak at Morgan, uh, we knew about it, and so we went over. And one of the things he talked about was black women trying to, black women straightening their hair to look like white women. Why not wear your hair natural as God created it? And Carlotta and I, from all the other things he talked about, you know, political activism and civil rights and demonstrating, and, you know, Stick was a little, SNCC was a little more militant than um, Martin Luther King. So we were, were uh, inspired that we were going to take an action to demonstrate um, and, and um, make, make manifest some of the things that he had spoken about. So we decided we were going to wear our hair in natural from that moment on. So since we had never done that before, we didn't know, you know, do we, how we're going to make that happen. You can't go to a salon because they're not going to do it. So we took the bus to Baltimore and we went to North Avenue and we walked up and down North Avenue until we found a barber shop that agreed they would cut uh, Carlotta's hair. Um, and what's interesting about this is in those days, barbers didn't really um, have women patrons. Men went to barbershops, women went to salons, and that was true in the black community, rigidly so. So to find a barber who said to Carlotta, yeah, I'll cut your hair. So he cut her hair, and from that day to this, she still wears her hair natural. That was the impact of Stokely Carmichael. And my hair was um, curly at the root, so I didn't really need the barber as much as I just needed to wash it and let it dry and not put any curlers in it or sit under the dryer or anything like that. I, I had never, my parents never used a, a, a hot comb on my hair, but I used to put it in curlers and sit under the dryer or my mother would um, braid it and, and roll it so it would have some curl. So imagine we come back from um, our adventure in Baltimore. The next day we're out on campus and we go to class and Carlotta has her hair cut in a natural, and my hair, I had a, a bigger, what became known as an afro, I had a, a big one. And we couldn't even find anything to pick it out. So we were using forks from the <laughs> until, you know, that became a commercial market. So imagine that one speech, one um, uh, motivational talk inspired us to make a shift like that, which my father was adamant. Why are you wearing your hair like that? Blah, 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 blah. And my mother would, would whisper in my ear, you wear your hair any way you want. <laughs> so that's a funny story, but it's also an inspiring story because he did something. Okay. And do you remember which year um, Stokely Carmichael spoke at Morgan? It would, 
Okay, so I was a freshman 66 through 67. It probably was after the assassination of Martin Luther King because SNCC became even more militant after that. Mm-hmm. So either the spring of 68 or the fall of 68 because it was before Carlotta left, 66, 67. No, 67, I'm sorry. So because she left before Martin Luther King was assassinated. So it was either the spring of 67 of the fall of 67. Okay. Carlotta will remember. Okay. Right. But that was a, a riveting experience for me personally and politically to say, wait a minute, the way you wear your hair is a political statement. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a political statement because I believe, you know, the hair I got is good hair. God gave me this hair. Right. And the same true for Carlotta, whose hair was different than mine, but nevertheless, still good hair. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, you better we better hang up before I keep remembering things. <laughs>